Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessem. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Good, David. Good, David. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Chris, on this episode, you had a lot of really good material, so I figured I would turn the reins over to you. We might do this often, right? Kind of trading back and forth. Where would you like to start today? Okay. Um, I wanted to touch base with the end of the last episode where you very kindly uh, shared with people the, the first paragraph of uh, my novel, Reverend America. I, I hadn't heard mm-hmm. that read aloud by someone else. And um, it occurred to me one thing I didn't mention is that that, that first chapter is called Now We Are Engaged. And I don't know if people recognize where that's from, but it is uh, the beginning of the second paragraph of the Gettysburg Address. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, which I'm afraid is more appropriate today than, than I really intended uh, when, I, when I wrote the book. But I right. thought that would also be a chance to uh, remind people that our focus is really on breaking down the binaries that haunt and disrupt our culture today. Um, we're really looking for points of connection and resonance. I think one of the things, one of many points of, of commonality uh, between us is that we look for points of commonality and resonance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're naturally optimistic that way culturally. And I think that's something that is kind of an undercurrent across this whole podcast series and something that really is very important today of how we break loose of binary thinking, either or thinking, Aristotelian thinking. Uh, there are many different you know, frameworks for that, but it's a real problem as people know, and it takes some cleverness, some open heartedness and a little bit of lateral thinking to, to break free of those uh, death trap binaries, really. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there are some great techniques that we talk about, some writers like Robert Anton Wilson, who we'll get to a little bit later. There are a lot of methods to break free of that. But I think it does start with a spirit of, of communion, which connects back to our idea of, of searching for home, which is another common theme between both of us. Um, but I did want to, to, to mention where that title uh, came from. Um, and I think we are engaged in a civil war on, on multiple levels in Western society, not just America. A challenge for us is to break free of very simplistic binary thinking, which we're very used to and almost oftentimes don't even notice. You know, it's so embedded in our culture. So, yeah. Yeah. There, so there's a few, a few things that come to mind when you say that. I've been listening to an audio book called Sand Talk by Tyson Yunkaporta, uh, an Aboriginal fellow from Australia. And the book touches on many different things, sort of um, their conception of space and time and gender roles and things like that. But he also talks about the fact that whenever – it's actually how he structures every chapter. He, he mentions that they're – not discussions or conversations. He's what they call yarns. And a yarn is when people get together and instead of attempting to dialogue with each other, which dialogue automatically implies that kind of 
you know, being at loggerheads with one another. A yarn is where you look for points of resonance and you try to pick up on things that work for you and develop them. And it's overall a more productive manner of speech than I think we're mm -hmm. used to. I think we're all kind of poisoned by Plato in this way. The, you know, the, the Socratic dialogues and you mentioned Aristotelian thinking, right? Um, but basically when you have a dialogue with somebody else and you're trying to beat them or dunk on them or best them with your knowledge and your logic, it becomes a warlike setting. And unfortunately in a war, you know, there are winners and there are losers, but I can't think of a single war in the history of wars where the quote unquote loser has ever walked away and said, well, I guess I'm done. They beat me. <laughs> you know what right, I mean? Right, right. Well, you know, the idea of dialectic, you know, is a beautiful idea. I mean, it takes many different forms, but I'm thinking of it in its most basic form of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You know, the problem is most people really don't learn that as an art form, which it is. We, we really get stuck on the adversarial system, which is embedded in our law system. And the idea is that somehow if you, you know, you're free to make the strongest, most aggressive case you can, the other party will be equally aggressive and somehow things are going to sort of work out. But you have to ask, well, why the need for the aggression, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. why is that assumed, you know, even, even in a kind of rhetorical, you know, more uh, genteel, uh, making an argument, making a case. Um, what is more effective, I think, is when speakers and writers do that themselves. That's an interesting technique, I think, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to putting forward, you know, with that that same approach with another party or with another point of view. It always assumes a different point of view, doesn't it? And, and it does, why yeah. do we make that assumption? I mean, how do I know that you have a different point of view? Uh, unless we yarn a bit, you know? Right, right. And I think that it ends up, you know, being a mischaracterization of the of your opponents. One thing that I've learned, because when I'm on a place like Twitter, for example, I follow a bunch of people who, you know, will give you cooties if you listen to them. People on the right, sometimes people on the very far right. And I follow them just to see what they're thinking. And the advantage that that gives me uh, I haven't become a Nazi yet, as far as I know, but what it has done for me is that I'm able to not turn people like that whom I strongly disagree with into cartoon villains, right? I'm able to keep them as people, and I'm able to find some things, I'll be very careful with what I say here, some things that actually are missing from, let's say, a leftist or a liberal discourse, Right? There, are th mm -hmm. there, you can go mining, you can put your hands in the dirt, like an archaeologist and dig things up. You're going to get a little dirty in the process, but you'll come out with a point of view that's much more well-rounded. So when I'm talking to my friends or yarning, uh, I often at first say things that they find very troublesome and problematic, but because they're my friends, they give me time to talk. And usually by the time I'm done, it does. It, I'm not, you know, swaying them to my side with my brilliant rhetoric or anything like that. But they, but they always come away saying, actually, I didn't know that about the other side. And that's my point. You have yeah. to know those things.
Well, you know, if you take it out of any sort of political argumentative sort of context and think of it more in terms of ensemble music, you know, it, it's mm, it's not that. what someone is is missing or what they're not, you know, doing right or how the disagreement. It's it's what you can contribute to it, how you can harmonize with it. Harmonizing is a really beautiful idea. I wish that more people, you know, even if you're not musically, you know, talented or trained at all, you can get with that idea conceptually and you can practice it a bit in terms of of riffing on what someone else is doing, you know, connecting. And I think. Um, I mean, I think that's what you and I are doing. I think that it's not so much about trying to make a case all the time. I mean, who wants to be doing that? That sounds very tiresome to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, it really you know, does. But, but it's, it's the musicality. It's the communion. It's the connection. It's the building a bigger picture together. You know, I mean, mm. I think that's what, uh, you know, so oftentimes they've done some beautiful uh Edward um, T. Hall was an anthropologist who I admire a great deal. And he did a lot of work with a guy who was into ultra slow motion photography and uh, filming and documenting group behavior. And some of the work that came out, you could actually see physically in the facial ex expressions, people not listening to what someone else is saying. Why? because they're internally rehearsing what it is that they're going to say, mm, mm -hmm. which by the time they get around to it may not be in sync, may not be on the beat, may not be on time, may not be in key. And then they get upset because they had some, you know, they've missed it musically, but they may not be able to register, you know, that idea articulately. Uh, and that makes me think, I don't know if people may have heard of the, uh, the really just a, a great genius uh, anthropologist, uh, Gregory Bateson, who taught in English, he taught for years, though, at the University of Santa Cruz. He some of his core ideas uh, came from his time uh, in, in Papua New Guinea. He um, he lived in several different communities there. He was uh, he was married to Margaret Mead for uh, for many, many years. Interesting mm -hmm. sort of marriage there. Mm -hmm. um, but he came up with the idea of schismogenesis, schismogenesis. What a great which is, word. Isn't it beautiful? It's the, it's the intentional creation of division within a community. Mm. And I mean, I think that the, uh, the American media has, has developed a whole playbook about that. But one of the things that he looked at in a community in the middle Sepik River which is uh, very important to me. It's not far from where I contracted <laughs> malaria. Um, schismogenesis actually work in a positive way to correct discord. It can be, it can work in a counterbalancing sort of way. So, so sometimes when we talk about creating division, it, it can actually, if you use that as a counter magic, if you like, it, it can actually work some interesting ways, but I'm, um, <laughs> He also said something, a definition of information, which I, I think is really very powerful. Um, information in information science terms is a value exactly in proportion to its lack of predictability, which is something that, in other words, the more wow. likely you are to know what I have to say, the less information it carries. I love okay? that. That's so great. You know? Because that, that goes into novels and poetry and rap music and jazz and all this kind of stuff that we're talking about. Un, un, and comedy. That's comedy, isn't it? 
It well, it is exact. You know, this gets you know, comedy is so hard to talk about without sounding like a dickhead, right? Because mm-hmm. you're trying to sort of kill the beast. But that is exactly right. If you know the punchline, there is no punchline. Mm-hmm. You know, you've switched off. If I say roses are red, violets are blue, you've stopped listening because right. you think you know where that's going. Right. You know? Unless and you're I doing think- a, an Andrew Dice Clay thing, you know. Right. <laughs> I want. Can you go back really quick to the idea of schiz, schizmogenesis as counter magic? Okay. Well, the the first level of of meaning of it is exactly the way we would interpret it of the creation of division for uh, malicious purposes. Let's say. Um, let's talk. You know, in terms of taking a rural, remote, indigenous community and trying to say, in a colonial or neo-colonial context, trying to create division, pitting one leader against another to weaken the community to make it easy. You know, it's a psyops sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, what about reversing that psyops, where a community uh, divides in in a conscious way mm-hmm. to absorb uh, negative impact from outside. What well, about – That's that's what corporations do, isn't it? That's yes. why they That's why they put George Floyd's name on a hamburger at McDonald's. You know, it's, it's exactly schizmogenesis. They're appealing to people who already go to McDonald's. I'm going to use a broad generalization, so everyone please forgive me, but, you know, people who are a, a little bit um, – more to the right of the political spectrum, probably frequent McDonald's quite often because they tend to be lower income, people from the quote-unquote flyover states, right? But McDonald's can adopt that stance and absorb the heat that they would get from the other side, and it's like they're bulletproof once they do that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And like communities can use... Uh, division. I mean, we use division of labor in a really powerful sort of way, don't we? I mean, um, I was thinking about this in a very personal sense. Uh, my major divorce really bothered me for, for many years on, on many levels, the, the financial settlement, the whole deal, just a sense of failure and disappointment. And it was hard to sort of really come to terms with what was good about it. And then I remembered that my uh, then wife and I, you know, we could rock up to a campsite in near pouring rain with the sun going down. You know, that's not the ideal condition. Something went wrong with our planning, you know, whatever, whatever. But we could turn that around and have the whole thing set up beautifully within a matter of minutes without any words shared because we had an awesome division of labor on that level, you know, just awesome. Yeah. And so that's an example of schismogenesis kind of used in a positive, proactive, magical way to achieve goals, you know, mm-hmm. so you don't have over, you know, redundancy, so you don't have repetition. So you're not in competition. You've, you've got some kind of principle of, of workmanship that is really well oiled and, and grooving, you know, and it, um, and it works inside a person's own mind too. So schizmogenesis is great in this time where everybody's supposed to sort of have the party line opinion on everything. You know, I'm supposed to think X, Y, Z if I want to fall into this camp. 
Well, schismogenesis is a way for me to maintain my own sanity with that. It's a way for me to resolve the inherent contradictions that will be found in any dogmatic ideology. So well, this, that's is, right. this is sort of a way of protecting your own mental health. I think it is, I think it is good magic. Well, you know, I mean, I think the underlying idea is that, that bad magic can be turned to good magic and vice versa. You know, there's the old saying in medicine that, you know, the cure is the poison, you know, mm-hmm. poisons are often, you know, in the right dose, a cure and cures in, you know, the wrong dosage can be poisons. It's mm-hmm. that interconnectivity, the resonance, you know, underlying it is really a unity and continuity of things rather than difference. But differences do need to sort of be instilled sometimes so that you can get a kind of working friction. I like that idea of a working friction. We think of friction as being bad. Well, yeah, I can think of a few human activities where some friction is pretty good and pretty important, <laughs> you know? Just saying. Not uh-huh. not any not any one particular activity in mind, but I you know sure. there are a few, you know. Uh, sure, sure, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's a fantastic idea. So um, we were relating that idea also, this idea of binaries, things like that, to speaking in tongues. Um, and you had some great stuff to say about that, um, that we unfortunately had to cut the last episode at the 45-minute mark, which we will not be doing today. We're going to rock and roll, baby. Um, so can we pick up that thread, the speaking in yeah, tongues thread? yeah. I think that's really important, which is, you know, the technical term for that is glossolalia, um, which is speaking in an unknown language. Uh, there are lots of interesting theories about where this ability comes from. It is a world culture phenomenon. We find this in Malaysia. There are some really interesting Southeast Asia sort of moments where this happens all around the world. So it's something that is, is part of an experience. There are psychological explanations of uh, collective unconsciousness. Um, there is also the idea of it consciously in, in a cultural sense more than an individual sense because it does need a kind of cultural um, support. It, it isn't something you can just kind of do, you know, <laughs> at home while you're on the treadmill or something. You need that kind of communal congregation uh, support for it. But it, it, it is related to trance states, which I think you and I both are really, really interested in as a way of kind of clearing the mind. You know, it, it's a meditative mm-hmm. practice that I, you know, a lot of the meditation, I, I practice meditation every day and I, I'm, you know, there's, it's still a learning uh, process, a process of discipline. But I think people who are language oriented, who are on that, you know, that third semantic circuit, as uh, Korsbisky talked about and Timothy Leary, um, it's very hard to break out of the symbol systems of of language and, and the conceptual frames without using language in some way as your counter magic. And I, I think that's what speaking in tongues is is kind of about. It's a way to break up the the traditional sense of sense. You know, think of Edward Lear's wonderful nonsense poems, and and think of the concept of nonsense. I mean, that in itself is is really a deep idea, you know. Um, but it, it's also a, a form of um, I think 
very legitimate hypnotherapy. I don't know what people think about that. Um, my father, when he left the ministry and, and became a psychologist, he got very into uh, hypnosis. I, I And at one point he ordered the, you know, those little hypno wheels, you know, mm. oh, yeah. the, that spin. Well, he, he somehow got sent about 10 of them. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought they were just fantastic. I just liked, you know, at that age, I just liked seeing them, you know, I'm not sure if I discovered. Yeah. I think I had discovered pot by then. Um, that was pretty <laughs> early, but I like these hypno wheels and I, I like the, the underlying idea that even if it's, I, I think the science of it will always somewhat be in question. Um, and maybe that's good. I think science should always be in question. That's the, that's where interesting science happens, isn't it? It's it, when it is, you know, um, but I think this idea of speaking in tongues is another example of where the human story, the human yarning, you know, mm-hmm connects all around the world. Remember we talked about Bruce Chatwin and the song lines, I think in Australia as well. There is so much more continuity in people's, uh, that semantic third circuit, that management of symbols, that dealing with maps and story and, and that kind of modeling of reality. And that's where, you know, why Jung was on such solid ground, I think even, you know, just, positing the, the, the collective unconscious because it's there are so many good examples of it mm-hmm, in language, mm-hmm. in music, in visual art. Um, it, it's kind of all about the same adventure of trying to, to negotiate that binary between nature and human social reality. Yeah, I think I, I want to go back. I want to, you, you said a bunch of stuff that I think we could tease out a bit. Um, there's a lot of great stuff. So the first thing that I want to touch on is hypnosis and the question of, is it real or not? And how science is always going to have a problem, um, pinning it down. So science has the exact same problem that it butts up against every time experiments are done on, uh, psi effects, telepathy, things like that. And there's a very interesting theory that I've only heard in one place, which was from um, from Gordon White at Rune Soup. Uh, it was I was taking a course on the tarot, and Gordon had traced the tarot back to uh, earlier games that were meant to sort of be playful, but also have a predictive effect. And so I think you can put psi effects, hypnosis, all of this into it. Uh, I also think that you could probably put paranormal effects into this, things like ghosts and sightings of cryptids and things like that. What if it's genuinely important for the person who's being hypnotized to believe that they're being hypnotized? What if that's a fundamental essence of what makes it work? What if the psi effect stuff, what if you have to have somebody who genuinely believes in their ability to connect in that way in order for it to work? What if that's the fundamental piece? What if playing, making it into a fun game uh, where the stakes are not a binary yes or no in a scientific research paper published by some journal somewhere, what if as soon as you try to put it into that binary, the magic stops working? 
Listen, I think that is 100% right. And I think there's actually a lot of very well-documented evidence about that. Um, Robert Anton Wilson makes exactly this point in terms of people who are susceptible to the placebo effect are invariably healthier. And if they do have any uh, pathological problem, they, they get cured faster. Correct. The, will, the, the belief factor, I mean, is so important. I, I think the problem is we don't really have as articulate an understanding of what we mean by belief as we would like. I think there's probably a very profound, very tangible neurobiological uh, basis for that, which ties back to you know our idea of, of how magic is is tangible and physical. It's not a conceptual uh, you know action at a distance thing that is um, completely metaphysical. It, it's pro it, there. There may be a very very physical. It may have some quantum elements of kind of non locality, but you know we're seeing that in a very sort of real sense in terms of physics. But I think what you're saying is absolutely right. That that the and and I the key word there. I always say to my class, you know, what was the key word that someone said? And they go, I, I don't, you know, trying to teach people how to listen, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the key word begins with a P. Everyone out there, playful. I think that's so vital, you know, and we see that in animals. We see, you know, this is how people really learn is when they're playing, you know, yeah. the seriousness of a child at play. What yeah. a great line. It's that. I mean, 90% of people report experiencing telephone telepathy where they're thinking of the person right before that person calls them. I mean, that's a very common sigh effect that is real. Uh, once again, in Sand Talk, Young Caporta talks about the, you know, some six trillion uh, neuronal connections in our brains that are currently not being used, that used to be used, that were there for a reason, um, and which harkens back to the stories of Aboriginal people being completely psychic, right? Mm -hmm. of, of being able to communicate with themselves telepathically. I didn't mean to make such a jump from hypnosis to psi effects, but I think that the reason why I did is because they both fall under these uh, rubrics of things that cannot be adequately studied ever if you're in a white lab coat setting. That was MKUltra's big problem. That's why the government could never quite weaponize this correctly. It was because everything had to be in a stark white room lit by halogen lights uh, with a person with a clipboard analyzing what exactly it was that you were doing. And it even kind of worked in those settings. But if you really want it to work, it has to be in a more playful setting, maybe enhanced by some entheogens, uh, maybe not. Uh, but, <laughs> but it is this sort of uh, uh, matter of getting back to this sort of ancestral knowledge that we all sort of have. Like this... this I'm beginning to become obsessed with the idea of a brain that we have that we're never using because of too many screens and, and lights and words and opinions and thoughts. Um, so that's a bit of a ramble, but I just had to go. No, I think there's a, a lot, there's a lot of coherence to that. I mean, there, there, in terms of, of, you know, the experimental proof of this, I mean, for starters, we, we know in an anthropological sense, the observer effect of, of we can never write out 
the observer from any experiment, but the observer has an influence on that. Um, and that's not to be confused, as many people do, with the Heisenberg uncertainty a very specific meaning of not being able to measure both the speed and position of a particle at the same time. But um, I know you're a fan of, of Rupert Sheldrake, and I, I, I hope a lot of people listening are familiar with him. Very, very fine mind. One of the, the, the best writing scientists uh, I think that, that exists, and he's, he's too well-trained for people like Richard Dawkins to dismiss. But, you know, he's written a lot about ESP, and um, one of the things that's interesting about this is that people who want to experimentally, uh, if not prove, at least support ESP, uh, have no difficulty in doing so. And people who want to vehemently disprove ESP have no difficulty in doing so. So clearly, and this, this kind of makes sense because of the nature of ESP, right? Your attitude, your frame, not just your experimental methods, but your internal psychic state mm -hmm. influences the results. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the nature of the subject, well, it's kind of obvious, right? I mean, I think that indigenous Australians would go, duh. You know, uh -huh. you know, I mean, people certainly in the middle Sepik River would go, are you kidding me? Can That's you? news to you. <laughs> you know, I think what we're talking about, you know, is, is really a different kind of, of, of coherence um, that unfortunately, you know, use the term sort of, you know, sigh or metaphysics or thing. But for, you know, so many people around the world, it, it's, there's nothing metaphysical about it. It's, it's completely natural, physical, and tangible. And I was thinking of going, you know, when I went to uh, the, the, one of the major Australian Aboriginal cultural centers, um, the Ireland Downs, it's, uh, it's not in the Red Center, uh, and it's not in the North. It's, it's more in the Northeast, but it's, it's, it's a very, very interesting community. A lot of the great uh, bark art uh, have come, they, they gave us two, um, great artists of the 20th century who are now gone. Um, but I, I went to visit and I had uh, uh, a dingo. I, I um, lived with a dingo and I was sort of the child of the family for 15 years. What a beautiful dog. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are very mysterious. They, they, they are known to, to have a kind of psychic ability and I can, I can vouch for that. But anyway, I, I brought the, uh, the dog to uh, you know the home of, of, of a real significant dingo uh, uh, culture, and I was thinking about we know for a fact, or at least uh, we're pretty much in agreement that indigenous Australians have been in situ for at least forty thousand years. And we have now sort of expanded that to thinking more like 60,000 years, at least. Um, the longest continuous civilization in one, um, or culture in one location that we know of currently. And pretty much everybody in the field is, is in agreement on that. Well, the interesting thing is we, we also know that the dingoes, um, they're... Uh, small wolves from the steppes of northern Thailand and they came down on reed boats uh, with the Thai and Malaysian traders and Malaysian pirates. The Malaysian pirates wouldn't sail 
without a dingo, um, which is, you know, interesting. Dogs don't necessarily go with, with boats, um, but they do. <laughs> but the indigenous Australians believe that um, the dingo is the shaper of culture and the bringer of language. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very powerful totemic position to assign to one particular creature. And these are people who really gave us, you know, serious totemic thinking. Um, so I asked one of the elders, I said, you know, I'm a little confused here because your people have, we believe, been on this island continent for between 40,000 and 60,000 years. And yet, you ascribe the, the bringing of language to these gold wolves that came much, much later. Much later. I don't see how that works. And this old gentleman, what a distinguished face, just this beautiful face of earth, you know, and, mm-hmm. and just a different kind of knowledge. He looked at me and said, Chris, have a beer. <laughs> I love that story so much. That wraps right back around to speaking in tongues, right? Because isn't speaking in tongues the sort of having a beer of language, right? It's exactly that. It's short-circuiting a logic system that works beautifully in certain contexts and then is just so woefully deficient in others and it, it, it just ha- – something has to break that chain for those of us who, you know, are embedded within that system. And speaking in tongues is, is exactly it's, – it's the extension of, yeah, have that beer. Take a break from that mental modeling, mm-hmm. you know, that reality mapping that works so well when you're back in your embedded technological uh, social system. But – really doesn't work so well out under the stars and when you're talking about gold wolves, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it also, I think, is a really great escape plan for where we're at right now. I think that people should take the concept of speaking in tongues and messing with language and apply it to their lives. I mean, I, I've been trying to write in my journal with my left hand. Um which has been sort of the half measure to kind of get there. And it's very difficult, right? I'm not ambidextrous at all. But I've, uh, I've been trying to find some ways through automatic writing, left-hand writing, doodling. Uh, I'm getting into whittling now. <laughs> <laughs> to, oh, man, that's just... We've got to sort of somehow find a way to get some of your whittling endeavors so people uh-huh. can see them. We'll give you a chance to practice a little bit, but I love that. Yeah. I yeah. love that. David when I'm, the Whittler. When I'm, well, when I'm thinking of a chapter, I'll whittle, and whatever it is that I whittle <laughs> will basically <I> – was... <laughs> it'll, it'll, have, it'll have the thought process and the knowledge embedded inside the object itself, and then I'll set that little – thing up and I'll set them up in a row so that when I have to go back and edit or look at it, I can pick up that initial sequence of thoughts that I had and come back to it. It's my way of, you know, bringing speaking in tongues to the writing process. 
I think that's fantastic. And just to touch base with that left-handed, right-handed, you know, handedness is a really, really interesting binary, really interesting binary. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the interesting people, you know, Leonardo and Beethoven were both left-handed. I mean, we've got a real mythology about people who are left-handed because that's drawing on the right brain, whereas the left, you know, brain is responsible really for our right-handedness. But uh, Robert Anton Wilson via Alistair Crowley uh, advocated exactly what you're doing in terms of Mm. consciously speaking in tongues with your hands, so to speak, Mm -hmm. you know, the to and the dance language of, of beasts to tie into that James Dickey line, you know, this is exactly what you're practicing. You're, you're reaching, uh, the midbrain, the secret, the silent brain that lies between the two hemispheres. And that that's physical magic that you're involved in. That's correcting and inspiring and opening up new channels. And it's, it's amazing what those simple exercises can do, right? Mm, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I think that anything that breaks from the sort of, you know, I have to sit down and write a plot and character and dialogue and put those all together. I was um, really inspired to write recently. This is going to sound like the most conceited thing I could possibly say. But by some of the stuff I wrote six or seven years ago that I dug up off the computer. And when I dug it up off the computer, I realized that I had a real fascination with language that somehow went by the wayside over the past five years because I started getting some of my friends started getting, you know, book contracts and Hollywood stuff and writing for TV. And I started thinking, you know, I need to learn how to write like that if this is going to become a viable viable profession. Well, you can already see, because I know you, where I'm going I'm going real south with this idea. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Like that's but I and so I languished in this purgatory of, you know, bullshit that I couldn't get through. I couldn't find my voice. I couldn't find what was interesting about this to me. And so two things. One was going back through Reverend America and the the other was going back through my old writing and thinking, oh, I am a person who's in love with language. I have to just write whatever comes to my mind and and, and let that out on the page. And all my favorite writers do that. Well, you know, that is such a, an important and, you know, it's, it's simple in a primary sort of sense. W.H. Auden was once on this panel and uh, there were a couple of other sort of famous writers. And <laughs> the famous writers were asked, uh, what does it take to make a poet? And, and, and one of the famous writers said, oh, well, one must have themes. Themes are very important. One must have something to say. One must have a broad vision of humanity. <laughs> and and, and, and one, one must have a, 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 a compassion for, for, for social being. And, and one must have, and W. H. Auden said, show me someone who loves words. Mm. Beautiful. You know? Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that's it right there. That's that's as physical, tangible magic as there is. And the speaking in tongues, the using a different hand, the breaking free of 
really rigid logic systems that can work beautifully in certain contexts, but not really great in love affairs and writing and art and, and play. Mm-hmm. That's the way that the mind, you know, breaks out. That's the way that, that things happen. And, um, you know, I, I could see that in the last bit of writing of yours that you shared, you know, I could see, I thought the first thing I thought to myself, David's having a good time, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, and, right. and that comes across just powerfully line by line. And it's just like, it breaks the linear package up and suddenly there's a scene. Suddenly there's this magical transposition of non-locality in a quantum sense. I've moved somewhere. I don't know where, but I've, I'm not reading on a screen. Mm-hmm. I, I've been transported. And God, if that's not what, what art and writing is about, well then, you know, it's not about anything. <laughs> You so know, we have we it. have I 100% agree. So we have the uh, the writing with the left hand. We have the speaking in tongues idea, um, which by the way can also get you into an ecstatic state, which I think is important and we should probably touch on. Do you have any any other tips for getting into that kind of mindset as far as the musicality of the language goes? Well, you know, I think that there are a couple of good uh, simple exercises that that get us moving in that direction. Um, in terms of explicitly moving out there, I think you have to have a, a group of people who are really wanting to go there. Uh, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But there are a couple of really simple exercises. Um, consciously misspelling words breaks up uh, chains and trains of conventional thought and makes us review things. Um, Take the word nervous, for instance, as a nervous system, or I feel nervous. Consciously misspell that so that it's N-E-R-V-I-C-E, like a combination of nerve and service. Mm. Consciously do that. Look at some of the people, the great eccentrics, who have their own very peculiar uh, and idiosyncratic forms of spelling and, and syntax. I don't know if people know uh, Lord Timothy Dexter, um, mm-hmm. who wrote a wonderful book called A Pickle for the Knowing Ones. Beat that for a title, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that's, that is a – compare that to any sort of title, you know, of literature currently, you know, The Falling Evening Light or, you know, all that right. sort of nonsense. A Pickle for the Knowing Ones gets you. Um, so consciously use uh, misspelling and mistakes as as the basis of um, new ways new ways of thinking. Um, but here's here's another sort of simple thing that begins to uh, tell me something that you know you're absolutely a hundred percent sure of. Write that down on a piece of paper. Write down ten of those, mm-hmm. and then write down ten questions, questions that you think potentially have answers in life, you know, mm. not like, is there a God that that's too big. That's, that's, that's too much meat for the, the plate, but things that you're genuinely interested about, tear those sheets in half and flip them around so that you read one question and then you read an answer at random. You get an interesting form of poetry that, that really begins to build a different sense of, of sense. It's an old hmm. surrealist trick, and I, I really think it's a good 
thought starting exercise. But, you know, again, it's breaking down, it's using the binary idea. What could be more binary than question and answer, Q&A, mm -hmm. right. you know, but you're using that magic in a counter sense to break those chains, to break those sort of, you know, ideas down. Um, but I mean, here's, here's another, listen to, to music backwards, you know? Mm. Oh, interesting. Okay. You know, yeah. I mean, we, we, inst we, it's a, it's a psychological fact that people who have no idea of certain languages, uh, say Cantonese, for instance, Cantonese, Chinese, you, you may not have any idea at all, but people can actually hear when it's played backwards. Okay. Mm. So they're somehow processing something that's a lot harder to do with certain kinds of ambient instrumental music, you know, mm. listen to uh, composers like Harold Budd or John Hassel. Um, or, you know, Brian Eno, for instance, mm -hmm. listen to those things backwards and they begin to revise the circuits in your brain and help you release a natural ecstatic state. Right. You know, right. I, I want to piggyback that for just a second because I have an actual experience with that that happened recently. So as I probably mentioned on the show before, I am going every morning to this art space to do creative work. I've, I've been given the key to a downtown art space. Um, and my friend Eric and I will sort of set timers and we'll do different weirdo creative exercises. This is where I've done most of my left-hand writing and automatic writing and, and stuff like that. Um, so I went in there the other day and to my surprise, there was about five other people there because they were hosting a portrait drawing session. Um, so somebody was sitting on a stool and everybody was drawing him and they asked for a recommendation for music. And I had just heard about this thing that's really popular on YouTube, which is slowing songs down mm -hmm. by a massive amount. So I asked Eric to put on uh, Radiohead's Pyramid song, which is from their album Amnesiac um, at... It's it's slowed down eight hundred percent, so it's this it's this great glacial slow moving tide of a very beautiful but also very tense music. I think the song itself is maybe five minutes long, but the slowed down version is forty minutes long. <laughs> so right. I asked him to put that on, and we got about twenty five minutes into it, so a little bit over half before. Uh, the people who were there to do portrait drawing cracked and asked him to put on some stupid pop music that they could kind of like bounce to. And I was so offended <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and irritated because I was, it, it's not to get, you know, too gross or anything, but in a sexual way, I felt like I was almost there, you know, I felt right. like the, the, no. song, the song had been wearing away at me. And I was like, and I was working and I was feeling physically tired from writing just for that 20 minutes. And the, I knew the song very well. Um, so I knew where it was within the context of the actual song, but I, I was just, I was this close to kind of like getting through that pain barrier of it being difficult and slow and not always, um, sonically pleasurable but I was so close to breaking through into something very transcendent. And when they asked to turn it, I, I felt very upset. <laughs> I just, I, I kept it to myself. I didn't yell at anybody, but you know, after that they turned on something that was like, 
And I'm like, yeah, we're, oh. we're, we're back to, we're back to, you know, just numb, numb me, whatever, whatever can numb the voices in my head long enough for me to, you know, draw this, this portrait of this guy sitting on a stool. And it was so disappointing because I don't actually think that the creation of art should be something that is easy or necessarily always pleasurable. On the other hand, I don't ascribe it as this sort of torturous process because like you said, I am having fun while I'm doing it, but there's a difficulty akin to lifting heavy weights where after about 40 minutes at a gym, you you break through the difficulty and you're sweating and your body hurts and it doesn't want to keep going, but if you push it just past that point, you're floating on a cloud right? And you're just, you're just, and everything's burning and it's a state of ecstasy. It's a state of euphoria. And I think any state of euphoria worth being in is worth enduring that kind of um, difficulty. Eric turned me on to this uh, beat poet whose name I cannot remember now, who he was friends with Ginsburg, but he would do these spoken word performances where he would repeat words, would repeat words, right? Like he would, he would go through a line and then he would say it again. And then he would say a line and then repeat a certain phrase from it again. And when you listen to it, it's not immediately pleasurable. It's not like listening to top 40 radio, but when you listen to it long enough, you find that you're actually getting into a kind of a third thing, a glossolalia, a kind of rhythm with this guy where you're not necessarily even listening to the words, which is ironic because they're being repeated to you, but the words become an instrument. And now you're kind of floating with this guy. So this idea of speaking in tongues when you're at a church, when I was at my church growing up and people behind me would be speaking in tongues, there's about a 10 minute period where it's extremely awkward and it's sort of spreading like a virus throughout the, the congregation. One person will start and then another person will start. And it's very, it's this, it's this awkward phase. But once you kind of break through and everybody is, you know, they're doing a conga line through the pews and, you know, bashing a tambourine and the preacher is, you know, screaming at the top of his lungs with no mic and people are speaking in tongues, you do get to an ecstatic state from that. And so there's a bit of difficulty with it. You know, there's so many musical, uh, I mean, we're, we're really talking about that, that moment where music and information in the form of language joined together. And I, it makes me think of, in, of Arab music, you know, which is so strange to Western ears when you first hear it. And it, it takes a long time because there's no time signature, you know, you, you, or if there, you just get lost in it. And it just seems like what is going on here? And in a different register, um, I don't know if people have, have listened to, uh, Ghanaian drummers, but I mean, Ghana is really, I think, the drum capital uh, of, of Western Africa. I mean, it's um, not just the really famous recorded musicians, but people in villages, you know, it's something that everybody does, you know, it's it's just, you know, it, it it's like the if you're Welsh and you can't sing, you know, what what do you mean you, you don't have a beautiful voice and can't sing? You, you're Welsh, you know, and what what do you mean you're not a drummer? You know, you're gonna when they get going, it's like, I mean, polyrhythmic would be the you know the the Western sort of idea. 
that just doesn't cover it. It's like getting lost in some sort of incredible, uh, well, I don't even, it's not a jungle. It's, it, there's no way to conceptualize it. It's just, and then you realize, wait a minute, they're getting lost too. That, that's the whole point. And they're, they're finding each other. You know, it's like this amazing hide and seek game going on in completely improvised real time. There's mm -hmm. no, there's no plan. There's no charts. There's no rehearsal, but they're, they are getting lost too. That's kind of the point. That's exactly the point of it. It's a hypnotic state of letting the drums find each other. Correct. Yes. What a trip, you know? I mean, and I, I think that that's, that stands in, in uh, complete contrast to our current idea of what novelists are supposed to be doing. Novelists are seen as these great distillers of knowledge, character, dialogue, place, time, rhythm into something that is very palatable and consumable by the masses. This is how the arconic forces that are at work in our world right now seep into our art and steal from it. They've convinced everybody that you have to have, you know, God bless him, but Joseph Campbell, the idea that you have to have a Campbellian plot with rising action that climaxes, I mean, it's a very masculine male way of looking at things, right? Like, what are the different patterns that you can find? I'm, I'm reading Jane Allison's uh, Meander Spiral Explode, which right. is kind of her, it's a brilliant book that I recommend people read. But she's essentially talking about different ways that you could potentially write a story. She talks a lot about how somebody like Nicholson Baker is great at, at expanding time, dilating it, right? Versus a writer like James Elroy, who's telegraphic and, and condenses it. Like, what can you do that's maybe slightly difficult? Because Baker's The Mezzanine is a tough book. It's very pleasurable, but it's also very big and very tough. And Elroy's American Tabloid, which is my fa one of my favorite novels, maybe my favorite, is also very difficult because it's so clipped and sparse and minimalist and telegraphic. It's, it's not this kind of pleasurable pace that people want from things like film, music, books, etc. But that's where it gets really interesting, right? That's where when you end the book, you think, I was challenged by this. This was a difficult thing. And by the end of reading it, you can't wait to get back into that trance state because you can just fall right back into it. You know, this is the great sort of achievement that started with the modernists. I mean, I think it, you know, really think of Joyce beginning it, but it carries on where it's the time binding aspect that Korsbisky talked about with general, general semantics of that is the great human magic of, of language being able to bind time, to change the nature of time. And I, the, the writers that you mentioned, and I think, for me, all the writers that I really love have something to do with a new ratio of mind to time. You know, they're using language as their magic means to change our sense of ratio of mind to time. Yeah. And you go back to what, what is the trance state, however you achieve it through hypnotherapy, through music, through uh, the repetition of words. 
Um, however that's achieved, you're stepping outside time. Yeah, yeah. I was asked to review Blake Butler's new novel, Alice Knott, for World Literature Today. And Butler is considered by a lot of people to be a very difficult writer because he's very extreme. I call him, a, basically, he's a black metal album in novel form. It's this very <laughs> kind of acerbic, acidic prose. Uh, a lot of, you know, pus and sweat and spit and shit and all this kind of stuff uh, that you don't really want to read about. Uh, he's he's very influenced by uh, Pierre Guillotat, um, like Eden, 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 and uh, Tomb for a Thousand Dead Soldiers, 100,000 Dead Soldiers. Um but what he's doing in that book, and he's a younger dude, I thought was so brilliant because I won't get in too much into the plot or anything like that because that's not what's important. But what he's doing is challenging you every step of the way to get into this woman's mind that is like both her mind and her body are falling apart and the language is doing that with you. So you're invited on this sort of death journey uh, with this person and it's difficult to get through. But by the end of it, you are in a kind of ecstatic state, and it feels like a magic trick when it's done. And I don't mean magic trick like a stage magician. I mean no, I understand. Ma magic like a shaman. Yeah. Well, you know, th this was um, – I mean for many people and for many cultures, that state is, is, is the point of art. You know, um, it, it, it's a strange uh, perversion in a way to move to – um, I don't know, not that entertainment, you know, entertainment is play and is a, is a great thing. I mean, we all enjoy, you know, art that, that takes us to that place too. Um, mm -hmm. no question. Mm -hmm. But I think the point is that the shamanic state, the magic state is, is broad enough to engage with entertainment and play. Whereas just pure entertainment, uh, is not capable of of reaching out past its its boundaries. Often, you know, it no, it's a, it's, it's disposal. It's an entertainment as sedative. That's right. the problem. You don't want the sedative aspect of your entertainment. I was going back through and watching all of uh, Gaspar Noé's uh, music videos. One of my favorite filmmakers. He did Irreversible and Enter the Void. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. These kind of very intense sensory experiences very brutal he did I st his first film was i stand alone which is a, a chore to watch it's not a chore but it's it's brutal to watch right um and i was watching his music videos and they're all very sort of explicit and in your face and i'm not saying that necessarily art has to be gross or offensive to do this but it's definitely one of the ways Right, one of the ways that you can sort of get into that sort of hypnotic state. I'm thinking of, you know, shamans who will cut themselves, right, uh, uh, to get into a kind of trance state where they're, you know, channeling some kind of spirit. Like, there's a little bit of pain involved, and that pain is important. Well, certainly, pain has been used, you know, by many cultures as a kind of of, of drug mechanism to to reach ecstatic states. Certainly, in initiation rites. Um, there's no question about that. I, I think the problem in, in uh, sort of the developed nations now is that oftentimes uh, it's been used as a shock mechanism, which is good if it does shock. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I think that we're on we're an unfortunate period right now where people seem to be very very squeamish about being shocked at all, which right. I think I think the pendulum is going to swing on that, but it has to be uh, to go back to to Greg Bateson's idea. In order for it to be information rich, it has to be unpredictable, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so the shock has to be there in certain ways and not necessarily a gross shock, but something that simply defeats expectation, that, that, that right. short circuits our sense of being able to uh, forecast where something is going. And when you think about it, I mean, that is one of the greatest buzzes about any kind of, of art is when we are surprised, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sometimes you can be surprised by banality too. Um, Absolutely. There's another movie that I don't remember the title of that a friend was telling me about where it's, it's just a woman in her kitchen, uh, sort of doing chores. Right. So what's more painful to watch a kind of splatter horror movie of, you know, somebody getting their like, like toothpicks under their fingernails or the kind of agony of watching someone do their chores and, being so programmed by modern art to expect, you know, is an intruder going to come in? Is something going to go wrong? And it just, it just refuses to engage on that level. It's just the chores, right? Which is actually more painful to our modern sensibilities to watch. Right. Good question. Well, you know, Andy Warhol explored that, I think, you know, with his, you know, I think it's a 24-hour film of the Empire State Building, mm, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's it, it challenges us to sort of, you know, what is the mundane, you know? What is, uh, what are we expecting to happen? Um, you know, if it's, it's very, um, I wonder if that's connected, you know, the, the old saying is, you know, if you speed up a horror film, you get farce. You know, and I think that's really true. You know, it becomes kind of ridiculous. So maybe what uh, the the mundane project is about is short circuiting that that notion of well, what what are you what are you expecting? You know, mm-hmm. um, my uh, my father used to tell this joke, which he used to think was terribly funny, and would laugh at every time. But um, this guy's staying at this you know cheap hotel, and um, he goes down to the uh, the desk and says, "Oh, th- there's a there's a mouse in my room," and uh, the guy behind the counter goes, "Well, what do you want for a dollar and a half a night? A bullfight?" <laughs> you know, and every it's kind time of, it is kind of funny. It is kind of funny. And he had another story which is I, I used to love, and and my sister and I would get him to say it over and over again. You may have heard this. Stop me if you've heard this one, as Tom White says. Uh-huh. Twas a dark and stormy night, and a band of robbers was camped in the shadow of a hill, and as lightning lit the tethered horses, the captain of the robber band strode up to the ancient oak, where old Bill was about to light his corncob pipe, and he said, Bill, tell us a story. And Bill lit that corncob pipe and looked back into the face of the captain of the robber band and said, "'Twas a dark and stormy night, <laughs> and a band of robbers was camped in the shadow of a hill, 
And as lightning lit the tethered horses, the captain of the robber band strode up to the ancient oak where old Bill was about to light his corncob pipe. And on and on. And, and, you know, on a long drive, you know, Dad would do that uh, faithfully. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah, no, that's good. That I mean, well, he was getting you into the dancing language of beasts by doing that. Exactly. Because eventually, eventually you'll become so hypnotized and out of it just by the words. You're no longer, like, once you know what the story is, this is why people revisit film and music and, and uh, you know, books and anything that they actually love. Because once you know what happens in a plot, once you know what happens with the character, why do people keep coming back? Right. Very important point. Yep. You know, they're they're at a certain point. They want to be absorbed in the texture of the work. They want to sink into it, knowing completely where it's going to go. This is why spoilers are such a dumb idea, right? Because what happens is largely inconsequential to anything. You know, it's about being in the work. It's about feeling like you've already been there before, but how are they going to texture it this time? Exactly right. It shows us that we're really embedded in, in works that we really come to love in ways that, uh, well, I, you know, this ties back to our, our idea of home where we defined home in our, our, our first episode. And I think we'll keep coming back to this as, you know, some sort of place, not just physical, but psychic, but both psychosomatic, where mm-hmm. we feel we are important, where we have a contribution to make, where we are co-authoring the space and, and the, the event of, of the place. And I think this is what we find in, in works of art that we really, really love, that the, the surprise of information is no longer in the plot line of the story. We, we're, we're on top of all of that, and we can be on top of that musically, and we can be on top of that in terms of visual art. The, the surprise is our level of intertissue engagement, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I know every Sherlock Holmes story, the whole canon, you know? 54 stories and four novels, I know the whole thing almost by heart. But what I love is certain moments of, you know, certain lines, you know? Mm-hmm. Certain, you know, things that, that I can mesh with. And I feel like... I'm there. I'm part of it. I'm home, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and that's mm -hmm. the surprise. The surprise is, and what keeps this, you know, it's the news that stays news as, uh, as, you know, that's a really important idea. Um, it's a religious idea too. come to think of it. Evangel, the good news as opposed to disangel, you know, the bad Mm -hmm, news. mm -hmm. Um, it's when we connect with things and we go, wow, you know, we're, we're magically transported. And that's my definition of a kind of ecstatic state. What about you? Do you think, do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think about some of my favorite songs, some of the songs that have gotten me through really hard times, you know, they, they might be, you know, four or five minutes long, but I was always waiting for a certain kind of part of the song to hit. And it wasn't necessarily a dopamine thing. Right. Because when you're a very depressed person, you'll play one song over and over and over again. Right. Um, So for me, when I was uh, in a rough place, I would listen to uh, Robin. I would listen to her song Dance Hall Queen over and over again. 
uh, and I would listen to Aesop Rock, right? I'd listen to a very particular song from Aesop Rock. And I, I, would, I would be waiting for him to get to the third verse where he says, um, how's it go? He goes, uh, I've been completely unable to maintain any semblance of relationship on any level. I've been a bastard to the people who've actively, actively attempted to deliver me from peril. I have been acutely undeserving of the ear that listened up and the lip that kissed me on the temple. I have been accustomed to a stubborn disposition that admits it wishes its history disassembled. Right? Ooh, so nice. I mean, it goes on, uh, but I was always waiting for kind of like that moment, but that's, that's, that's a 15, 20 second part of that song, right? So what's going on in the rest of that? The rest of it is just like this atmosphere that is bringing me into the headspace to where I can fully absorb certain moments from it. And I think people do that with film books. What you said about Sherlock Holmes is perfect with that. You know, you can know it upside down and inside out, but you want to, you want to get to those sequences or lines that really resonate with you. You want to enter back into the speaking in tongues state, right? Maybe once you know a, a work of art well enough, maybe going back to revisiting it isn't that different from speaking in tongues because the words don't matter anymore because you already know them. You just, just want right. to get back to it. I think that's right, you know, and use that word, you know, moment, you know, there's a beautiful line. I can't remember, but a moment is not a minute. A moment can last eternity, hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's what the dance language of beasts, that's what speaking in tongues, that's what the ecstatic state is about, is, is that strange world. Uh, and, and moments are always intimately experienced, I think, even if they're culturally experienced. But it's that moment where time expands, contracts, no longer behaves according to the the binary systems, no longer sort of follows a straight logic, you know? It's it's unto itself. <laughs> <laughs> 